Marketing X Analytics is a podcast created by Alexander Sophronas to educate and inspire future marketing analytics professionals around the world. Hello, and welcome to the Marketing Times Analytics podcast. I'm your host, Alex Sophronis, and today I'm on with Stephen Silverman. Stephen, would you like to introduce yourself? Certainly, Alex. Uh, my name is Stephen Silverman. Uh, I have spent a career as a marketer from teaching at Washington State University to consulting for a global consulting firm called Monitor Group, uh, running a research organization for DuPont, working at Microsoft in a variety of capabilities and, and capacities, and consulting there for a number of years prior to working as in a couple of startups in healthcare technology. So uh, all in marketing throughout, throughout my entire career. Wow. And so what was your first experience out of school in business and in marketing? My first experience in business and marketing was in a small uh, consulting firm that um, I had met the manager owner of that firm uh, when I was working at Credit Union National Association as a consult or as a uh, intern. And uh, he left to start a firm. He hired me to do come in and do marketing for him. And so back in those days, we were using um, material where you would cut and paste literally physically uh, cut out images and put those on paper and type up uh, something and, and try and create something that looked like a newsletter. So those were the kinds of things that I started out doing when I was fresh out of college. Wow. So um as you progressed in your career when did you know that you were gonna stay in marketing for the long term or did you ever want to pivot to a different industry uh no i didn't want to think about a, a different uh role I, I like marketing uh to me marketing is about the fundamentals that i studied as an undergraduate in human communication and psychology and bringing those skills and, and that knowledge to understanding people and their purchase behavior, uh, their choice behavior, a variety of things related to marketing was something that I felt was uh, always where I wanted to be. Uh, and um, my dad had been an academic uh, marketer himself and a consultant. And um, that was probably the, the inspiration for me. But as I got into the career myself, uh, I realized that um, I, I needed further uh, preparation, and so I needed to focus. And that's what I did. I chose and stuck with marketing. And within marketing, was there a particular discipline that you focused around? You know, that's uh, that's uh, interesting. I think when I look back at what I've done, um, I've taken a circuitous route to coming to where I am, uh, what I've developed in the last few years. And by that, I mean, I've really been uh, involved in marketing strategy, marketing planning and strategy for organizations, financial planning as well as, uh, and management, as well as uh, conceptual and design and uh, driving advertising and that kind of activity. So um, I, I've seen creative activity and uh, I've spent a lot of time in market research. Uh, I spent 
my time focused in research at DuPont, and I spent my time focusing on research heavily at Microsoft. So it is a broad path that I have. And at each stop, I got deep in what I was working on. So it didn't just uh, skate from one to the next. I wound up being able to leverage a lot of the knowledge that I gained and prior work in the new roles. And I often tell students, as I still teach today at Washington State University uh, in their online executive MBA and MBA programs, uh, I often tell students uh, today, and as I have for a long time, that you know, you really, uh, for most people, it's marketing is not going to be the discipline that they focus in. So when they come to a course that I teach, I try to encourage them to uh, understand the breadth of what marketing is about so that they can interact with marketers more effectively. For people who want to be in marketing, it's important today to really pick and think about which direction you want to go in, because I think the discipline has a lot of uh, dimensions that it didn't have uh, when I first started. Mm -hmm. I think one dimension that's particularly interesting is how to get into the mind of the consumer in the consideration set and understanding how to break through the noise. Do you have any experiences where you were studying that that you can share? Yeah, so the whole idea, uh, you know, in, in the world today, there is so much communication that, it, that there's a lot of clutter for most people. And what they need to do is sort through that information that, that they do uh, incur, encounter and pick out the stuff that's useful to them. Uh, that's not always easy. And it's also not always a conscious effort on the part of people searching, uh, making a choice. So you need to stand out a little bit. And my experience uh, in marketing uh, is both B2B and B2C. And in both environments, uh, for different reasons, you need to create uh, a lot of awareness or at least interest uh, in what you have uh, by using whatever means are appropriate at the time. Uh, for instance, uh, in the last role that I was in, uh, I was working for a health technology startup and what we provided was we offer hospitals the capability to uh, better manage their finances by recovering or receiving payment from, uh, from payers primarily uh, for what money they're already due. This isn't about trying to get more, more resources or get more from them. This is something that was based on what they had agreed to and it just hasn't been paid. And so it's a very arcane and archaic kind of thinking if you look at it from an, uh, a purely exchange moment experience decision. But the companies that we worked with were facing in hospitals, uh, looking at margins that are very thin and important to break that barrier where they can see the value of what you're offering and to uh, make an investment in what you have. So in that case, in a B2B environment, what could we do to be considered more uh, aware, be, get people to be more aware, get them to think more carefully about what we provide and choose us as the option that they would like to go with. Uh, in that environment, and it's being a very finance-driven 
environment, we felt like we needed to do something to break through. There were other companies providing similar solutions. Uh, so we introduced a mascot uh, for our product. And um, mascots have been introduced with products for a long time. A mascot is uh, a little bit like a, uh, a, a spokesperson, if it, depending on how you bring it together. Um, but at the same time, it's a character that gets recognized as associated with the brand. And in our case, we were uh, a company called Advada and that was a concatenation of advanced data analytics that we used to create the word Advada. And that's what we were really about. Um, and then adding that, the idea that we're smart in how we use the data and analytics uh, led us to say, what would be a smart association that we could have? And we decided we settled on an owl, a smart owl that could represent knowledge and meaning that we could give to the product, but also use it as a way of breaking through the environment that we were in. So it is a, a more of an appeal to the emotional rather than a rational side of people, but it reinforced the meaning of the brand that we wanted and got us to know be known as, oh, you are the guys with the owl. And so it's it's a matter of what you want to test and what you want to try to present something that's different. Uh, but you have to communicate in a way which is meaningful, number one, and then you can have some room to introduce technologies or techniques that allow you to be different. And that's what we did. Mm -hmm. So uh, going to your experience at DuPont and starting there, what, what were you doing there? What uh, kind of marketing research or strategy um, you know, is, is high priority for a company like that? I worked in a division that, that they ultimately sold, and that was the reason I, I wound up leaving. Uh, they sold that division, but uh, the division was the uh, fibers uh, and textiles division. So one of the, I'll give an example in a second here. Um, one of the brands that we had was called uh, Lycra. It's a um, elastane product. A lot of people know it because if you buy a swimsuit, if you buy uh, women's underwear, garments, uh, if you buy workout clothing, you may see a Lycra tag on what you are purchasing. Uh, Lycra being an ingredient brand was sold as a chemical, if you will, to uh, a, 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 in the sense that it's a, a part of the fabric that a large fabric manufacturer will make. A very small percentage, 1%, 2%, 3%, depending on how much stretch you want in the fabric. And that product um, had a customer base that was being challenged by um, unbranded elastane. The invention of Lycra by DuPont back in the, I'm gonna say 1930s, it wasn't Lycra at the time, it was nylon and a version of nylon became Lycra. And some of the technologies were adapted that way. But the idea is that ultimately once patents ran out uh, and things like that, there became a very competitive market and a space where uh, overseas tech uh, companies could step in because they had lower infrastructure costs and lower uh, costs to begin with because they were building from scratch now. 
but nevertheless, um, in that situation, what we were facing was how do you get a company to decide to include the branded name? So you're going to have to give value that an elastane that is unbranded doesn't have. And that really is, you know, it's the difference between buying a branded aspirin or a branded soft drink uh, and one that is unbranded. And the question is, is it identical? And in the case of many products, it's not. There are um, variables that allow you to make ingredient choices. So for instance, in fabric that is includes an elastane, the cotton itself may not be as high a quality, for instance, in certain brands if they're unbranded. And the reason that they brand is to have the resources to be able to invest in the higher quality components. Uh, and so there, there's this sense that we can create a differentiated value and meaning by creating a brand. At uh, DuPont, what they were facing was the unbranded challenge with a brand uh, and a strong brand. So what we did was we started looking at what can be done to understand where um, uh, where we can have an inroad into that part of the market. And so that's what we did. And the research that we did then is related to um, the, the question was, uh, can you put Lycra in a towel, okay, and improve a bath towel and improve the experience of the bath towel? And the answer was uh, physically yes. And the question was, could you justify the higher cost for producing such an item? And would people want that? And in particular, um, this question was being asked by Walmart. Uh, Walmart was a distributor of product that contained these materials. And we were trying to convince them that they should choose our elastane for their product because we had a brand that they could hang a tag on their products in the store. And ultimately the objective was to uh, take a, a path that was different to understanding whether we could create some meaning and value because there would be a substantially enough of a difference that you'd notice the difference in price. And so the research that we did uh, focused on what's the experience that women have when they create a personal private experience in their bathroom. And so how do you get to understand uh, the bathing experience uh, and ask questions that are going to explore what does it mean to have a luxurious bathing experience? And what, what do you do in your bathroom? And we did some qualitative research with women who um, value their time, having their personal time, doing things that we learned, like even though they live alone, one, one woman told us, uh, she had a cat and she didn't want the cat to come in while she was in the tub. And so she closed the door. There was this sense of privacy and creating an inner sanctum. Uh, some of the customers that we interviewed uh, created a full experience with candles and with fragrances and so forth. And so we took a roundabout way of answering our question, would there be a space that we could enter that would be meaningful by having a higher priced but very niche product 
that would change the nature of some aspect of the bathing experience that hadn't been addressed before. And so it was at that point that we were, uh, when we were getting sold and the company that bought us took it over and I, I didn't follow the remainder of the process, but that was one of the periods of time when we were using a very qualitative approach to get a deep understanding of the meaning of an experience that we could potentially enhance. And so that's one thing that I did when I was at uh, DuPont that gives you a sense a little bit of the direction that they were willing and able to go at that time. That's very interesting. So you're talking about taking something with generic competition and trying to understand how can we fit this branded higher quality product into the customer experience and somehow enhance them, find out what is the value added for them, especially over a generic yeah, version. Yeah, and it's, class, it's a classic case, actually. Um, when you look back 100 and maybe let's say 120 years ago, 150 years ago, um, the, the question for the Morton Company in Chicago was, how do we differentiate salt? What do we do? How, how can you justify having a higher price for salt? And when the way they did it was through packaging. I don't know if you know this, but what they did was they wrapped their packaging in their, their container in wax paper, preventing the moisture from getting through the cardboard that was typically being used as a, um, as a container at that time. And uh, what they could then claim was that their salt did clump up in humidity. And as a result, this benefit was led to the tagline, when it rains, it pours, which was a very famous oh. tagline in the 20th century. And it was painted on their buildings next to the Kennedy Expressway in Chicago for decades. And when it rains, it pours. And that was a differentiator that took a generic product, added a value that was a very low cost to the company in the process. Uh, and, you know, later there was uh, packaging that was the, the wax paper became injected into the paper itself. So the paper became restricted, you know, be restrictive of moisture. But again, you know, over time, as, it, as with most things, it deteriorates. That differentiator deteriorates to an equalizer. It's no longer sufficient. Uh, it's no longer something that is unexpected or surprise. And so as a result, it loses its uh, strength and meaning in some cases. But by using imagery, uh, a little girl with an umbrella, um, and she's being protected from the rain, uh, communicated enough about the differentiation that today you can still see uh, a marginal difference in price between Morton Salt and the generic store brand and people buy it, right? And mm -hmm. today there may not be much of a differentiator in that particular benefit, but it established a brand which holds today still space in people's minds as there's something better here in this product. And there's a reason to show that to others. That's mm -hmm. what brands do is they show off to others and, and they represent a meaning, a language that becomes powerful for the company that owns it. Wow. So it sounds like the differentiator doesn't even need to be 
of a very great value. It just has to be something that the consumer can look at as a differentiation between two products and make a choice, assuming everything else is equal, they get a little better deal with one product. Yeah, and and this is the nature of uh, much of competitive environments uh, as, as we've seen them evolve over time, where natural uh, direct competitors wind up offering very, very similar products and features. And it becomes a matter of why would you choose one over the other? But if you ask someone who drives a Ford pickup why they drive it and why not a Chevy, they can go on, many of them, for at length. Uh, and yet the functionality, the physical capability uh, may be perceived differently and thought of in that way. But in practice, uh, in, in practical sense, can they pull the same amount of weight? Can they carry the same amount? Those kinds of things. Uh, there is negligible difference between them. But there is much value and strength in the brand because of what's been established and be built over decades of brand building. And, um, and Coca-Cola is, you know, another one that's clearly defined itself uh, almost to the point of um, limitation uh, or at the point of limitation there, they've tried to expand the brand into other categories, but they are what they are and they're the best at what they are. Um, but in a world where soft drinks have gone through uh evolution to many different kinds of things there's only so far that you can take your brand and claim value mm -hmm. recently i saw them for instance expand their brand association into tic tacs uh the breath mint a combination of tic tac and the coca-cola flavor hmm. a very different category but there they're riding on the flavoring of of the coca-cola experience as a change to the tic tac and so I thought that was a very interesting pairing between two brands, which typically um, are, are thought of as leaders in their categories from awareness perspectives and choice, uh, and yet teaming up to uh, solidify or leverage some of that existing uh, brand equity to a different category space, each one of them. Okay. So is that sort of the goal of a brand to make it... Um to expand the association of that brand with different entities and audiences? It depends on the evolutionary stage that you're at. But uh, as you look at a typical ad adoption of innovations curve uh, that Everett Rogers talked about back in the day, uh, you would see that it looks with that, that initial innovative period uh, and then followed by great growth uh, peaking out and then tailing off over time. Uh, that is roughly the path that many brands take. And the goal is to keep it from tailing off. The goal is to maintain. And what do you do at the point where growth isn't the same as it had been in the rocket growth years? And you can look at any number of companies that have gone this way and things like Microsoft uh, or what has, you know, what has Apple done? Uh, you know, and Apple is, if, you know, in the, in the always listed among the top five brands in the world. And one of the things that they've been able to do is to 
create enough meaning in their brand and in their lexicon, the language that they use about their brand to allow for natural associations, if you want to call it that, natural associations to occur where you might not have otherwise seen them. So for instance, iPod, iPad, iPhone, by creating a mechanism for branding the object, they were able to borrow all the meaning of what a pod is, give it their own spin, and define it in a particular way. Both language of um, verbiage, of words, but also of design and of imagery. And for decades now, the meaning of an Apple product is to be bold and to go where others haven't gone before, but to do it in a way which is so intuitive that you thought that you wouldn't need any special training to understand the meaning of the experience. Mm -hmm. And that that is what Apple Ness is. Apple Ness is we make it easy to understand, use, and live with uh, in a way that you cannot any longer live without products that are otherwise potentially very disparate in some respects. Uh, and so those capabilities that they choose to bring in, they imbue with the meaning of that brand. And they make sure that people understand that the value that you're going to get from this product, the computer, is substantially different, better, and worth more than any other computer out there. Mm -hmm. And others have figured out that it's smart. It's a smart position. They own it and you don't go bother going after them. I don't, you know, back in, you know, when you look around the market and whether it was, you know, IBM failed in part because of trying to go after instead of creating their own space. And and I think Microsoft in its earlier days, um, you know, oftentimes missed opportunities because um, they were taking more information in about the, the experience that was being provided through Apple and trying to communicate in a way that they just weren't, it wasn't in their DNA to do. Mm-hmm. And so when they created Zoom, their, their, their iPod, uh, sort of competitor, um, that was, you know, an answer to the fact that a category had been created by the introduction of the iPod. And now what was going to happen was others were going to have any number of technological hurdles to try and overcome, uh, but that they would want to associate their brand with as unique an experience and offering as you would get from Apple. And that's just, you can't copy DNA. Hmm. You just can't. And so when a brand is well-designed and well-built, you have a language, you have imagery, you have different kinds of associations that you make in your memory that make the offering unique. And it is that which the brand then takes on. And it's, it's easy in some respects, I'll say, to 
find the differences in brands because you can just ask people, um, you know, tell me what's the difference between Coca-Cola and Pepsi-Cola. And people can tell you. Mm -hmm. That tells me that there are different spaces in their brains that are holding information about those things. And they have distinct associations with them. Those, ob th those are objects. Our brains treat those things as objects. No differently in many respects uh, than they treat a tangible object. And so the associations that come with it, you know, this in the case of a mug, you're looking at something where it has, we know what mugness is. You know one when you see one, even though they're not identical to one another in, in many respects. Height, width, diameter, whatever dimension you want to pick. But you can look at it and say, okay, I can see five different things there, but there are each a mug. Mm -hmm. And that's where you get into category recognition and you get into needing to start distinguishing between your mug and somebody else's. And, and I'm saying, you know, your coffee mug is not the same as my coffee mug for a good reason. And therefore I'm going to charge differently. So all that's to say that when you look at objects in the world, brands are simply good brands are leveraging how our brains operate to create meaning and to hold meaning in ways that are consistent with the way we understand objects as a category or as a class of things that we understand in the world. And so being a good brand manager means creating a language that you can own and the best have done it. So does the brand come first or does the product and business come first and the brand is a natural outcome of that effort? Mm. I think, I mean, I'm, I'm the, the idea that popped into my mind was Levi's. Um, I, I like Levi's because there is a very tangible product there uh, in their uh, jeans. And it was the product that came first. Uh, they, they were developed, uh, they developed a pants that miners could wear that were going to be very rugged and very enduring. And it was that need at the time of the gold rush that they climbed on that movement and started packaging their name next to the, the ones that you want. In most cases, I think uh, the name comes after the introduction, but there are differences. Edison, for instance, obviously he had his own name. He slapped it on a lot of stuff and pretty soon it was the Edison phonograph or it was the Edison light bulb or it was the Edison electric company. And so, you know, in that, in that case, uh, when you've got an individual, especially, who brings themselves to the brand, whether that's Elon Musk or anybody that you can, you know, start looking around, start thinking of Steve Jobs, start thinking of the names that associate with brands. Um, they're part of the network of associations. And I talk about this in a different way uh, in work that I created myself called uh, Brand Constellations. And brand const a brand constellation is a collection of ideas, of elements, on a set number of dimensions that are consciously created, managed, and assembled when the best brands take action. 
But whether you intend to or not, you create a brain. And that's because we need to categorize things in the world around us. We need to name those things. We need to work with them. And we will use the name that we're given or we'll give it one. But if you don't give it a name, people will give it a name. Your brain will look to associate. What category is this in? Is it a mug? Is this a car? You know, is this this experience? What is this thing? And then you start to see what it does as it starts to connect with the other ideas that are in the network of meaning. And this is all based on how our brains work. This is how neurons connect with other neurons. And they those form networks of associations that are not unlike constellations in the sky, where you are drawing connections between existing objects or objects that emerge and making sense out of it. And in our mm-hmm. case with constellations and constellations have been used by cultures all over the world for all of known history and prehistory that, you know, what you're doing is a means of holding memory, holding meaning in memory. And those are the things that we want to do uh, to establish our brand in the minds of the market. Now, the market's mind is a very strange thing. It's collective uh, that is made out of individuals who are each holding a constellation of associations in their minds based on their brain structure. And so a cultural object becomes part of our physical manifestation of memory and mind uh, because we introduce it into the environment. And it's expensive. It doesn't come cheap. But once you've invested in it, it's hard to walk away from it because, as we know, we create the term brand equity to talk about what's the value that's held there. And you're talking about real estate in the minds of the market. Hmm. And that's what we pay for. So I can imagine if it's all about changing how somebody uh, associates your brand, then emotion evoking a lot of emotion must be very important for a brand when they're trying to build that brand using things like humor and love and what what people believe in or support yes and once again whether you do it or you don't people will and so what you find is that do you have positive or negative associations valence wives are are you feeling good about it or are you not feeling good about it Uh, that brand. And those associations color very much the choice that you're going to make. And so the strength of the meaning, the strength of that association and the emotional connection are all very important to understand when you look at what a brand carries. And so introducing, injecting emotionally connected, emotionally charged ideas is certainly uh, an element of what we try to do. because we want that association to be held there in a positive way, uh, the way that we can control. But if you don't do it, or if things take a turn, and for instance, uh, you know the the some of one of the seminal cases I guess that I heard about when you think about what a brand takes a hit is the Tylenol poisoning case, and from the early 1980s, uh, there were. Uh, There was somebody who was never caught, uh, put poison in Tylenol bottles because they weren't protected 
the way they are today. That gave rise to that specific, to putting a label on, you know, packaging. But the point is that Tylenol had a moment and made a decision to clear all of their product from every shelf, no matter what, throughout the entire country and destroy it. Now, Tylenol didn't have to do that because there was no evidence that there was anything like a threat that was nationwide. Hmm. There was no indication that that was the, the situation. But they felt that in part because of what they represent in the trust that they needed to maintain, that it was absolutely without question what they needed to do to retain the trust in the market and in the brand. And that action, keeping the product off the market until they came up with a solution to fix it, has been a part of what they've meant to an entire generation of people because of what they did in one moment when they faced a very strong challenge. And brands face challenges all the time. Uh, but the, the how you respond and how is it consistent with the meaning of the brand can have a great impact on how you perform over time once you've made that choice. So that reminds me of what's going on right now, which is with like Bud Light and some of the uh, com companies that are being canceled. It's kind of like what you're talking about, that they weren't careful enough and yep. they slipped into doing things that their base uh, started to associate them with. Exactly. And they got the, a reputation they did not want to get because it alienated their base. Correct. So that's, and, that's exactly what you're saying. And, and to put it in slightly different terms, because you're spot on, it's to say that what happened was there was an inconsistency between the network of associations related to that brand. Its constellation did not include the associations, the ideas, the meaning, the language, or anything that related to it that they wanted to introduce. And what they didn't know was how strongly those ideas were held to begin with, how strong was that constellation to begin with, and the difference between the, that and how easy is it to add something or subtract something from the network from that constellation is rooted not in your hands. It is in the mind, the market's mind. And the market's mind isn't subject to change simply on a whim. And so your, your observation is correct. It's uh, not consistent with the meaning of the brand. There's nowhere to fit that meaning in. And it left people with a sense of uh, not, uh, not being understood and also not understanding. And the simplest thing to do in the world uh, is, to, is to just ignore the, what's happening. And so that's probably the worst thing that could happen to a brand if, if people just say, you know what, I don't get it. I'll ignore it. The second worst thing, I think, and I, I, you can argue this either way, but is to have a negative association, because at least a negative association you can try and flip later or try and undo, uh, which for those negative holding a negative association, they might be willing to see a positive later. But for people who are kind of neutral and saying, I just don't want to spend the time thinking about it, um, it's hard to bring them back in. They just won't pay attention. So you're going to have to really think about what is it you're introducing and i don't know you know i'm i was surprised to see it happen because generally speaking uh anheuser-busch 
Budweiser in particular have been leaders in brand thinking, brand management for a century, more than a century. You, you can't think Budweiser, the, the parent brand, uh, uh, without thinking about Clydesdales. And that mm -hmm. didn't just happen. What, what they want to do with it becomes uh, you know, a big choice. So I know that went all the way up to the board of directors to have that done. That was not something that was done lightly. But uh, I imagine it was anyway. I know that for, I, I'm making that guess from the story of Spuds McKenzie, the party animal, who was a dog that uh, was introduced as a mascot to the Bud brand um, back in uh, the in the 80s. And that what what got put there and maybe it was Bud Light, if I get it wrong. Uh, exactly. But the idea was that it did go up to the point of introducing the, this dog and the dog was, needed to be introduced all the way up to the level of the board and the board chairman, Augie Bush. And, and Augie Bush, uh, the story that I heard uh, said uh, when he got there, what the brand manager has done was she put stuffed dogs that looked like Spuds McKenzie on everyone's chair. And they had to move that dog physically to sit down. Evidently, when it came time to start the meeting, Augie Bush was hugging his dog. And the way that I heard the story told, she said, um, I knew at that moment that we had won our strategy because mm -hmm. he was holding onto the dog. And so she had a, a very different sense of what that presentation needed to be like. But the idea that you're going to introduce a change to the brand in a company that has so much history in brand management. Uh, that was surprising to me. Wow. So it's, it's not only what you say, it's, it's also what you don't say. And, um, a lot of it seems to be getting ahead of these issues and leading the narrative when yes. something happens very much. And is there a coordination between like a crisis PR team and the brand team? Is oh, it like a war room? Yeah, and and the to be clear about that, my my sense is that the crisis PR team has emerged with the structure, strength, direction, and action group that it has because of if it wasn't there before Tylenol, uh, because Tylenol led the way in how you handle a disaster of untold proportions, which is you get out in front of it and you say, we're shutting it down. We're not going to let this happen. If you have that level of control to do that, that gives you a power that you need to think about when you're going to exercise it. And definitely working with top PR firms, uh, or, or at least very uh, partner centric and very closely uh, closely uh, developed relationships in those firms is important to have uh, in case you need that. Mm -hmm. So some some more branding questions. Um, let's say somebody who's listening is very interested in getting into branding or the brand world. Uh, how would you recommend that they break into the industry? Um, you know, there's there. As I mentioned earlier, every company has a brand. Everyone, 
wittingly or unwittingly, you have a brand, you have a constellation of meaning that's held in the mind. And that means that you can either choose to be intentional about managing it or just let it emerge, whatever happens, let it be emergent. Um, in, in general, intentional is better. And so working with identifying companies that need that could be your path to getting into branding when you have little experience. And that's what I did. Um, I, when I was starting working, um, we wanted to build meaning for the brand. I didn't know that's what I was doing at the time, to be honest, I didn't label it that way, but I knew that we needed to be consistent. I knew that we needed to be clear. I knew that we needed a language because I had studied that. And those things ultimately led me to know what, what you intentionally do to create that meaning. Um, so I would say approaching uh, startups, what you'll find is that a lot of startups don't have uh, the resources dedicated to branding and they shouldn't in many cases. And I say that because uh, they have so limited resources to begin with, they've got to focus on what their offering is. But at the same time, you've got to recognize that a little bit of control, a little bit of intent goes a long way. And so hiring somebody even part time to help your startup to manage its image is extraordinarily beneficial when it comes time for investors to understand who you are and what you do. And that was a big part of what we were doing at Advata was consciously creating a brand that others would understand so that our investors would themselves better understand what they were putting their resources into. And that to me is a starting point for a lot of people is find a company that's there, but isn't doing it right now and help them to see that by being intentional, by being focused, you're creating the brand, they'll be creating those assets that they need for the direction that they need to go. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's a great place to start. It's early for you if you're early in your career and it's early for a company which can take a risk and you can try out new ideas and create meanings uh, that haven't been thought about before because you're going to be very tightly associated with the designers, with the developers, with the creators, and you'll be able to create what in the brand represents the meaning and ideas that are held there. So those are things that you might want to consider is I, I started in a small company and I think small companies, it could be your hardware store, local hardware store. It could be a, a you know, a local uh, uh, association or organization that just doesn't have a lot of resources. It could be a credit union, anyone who has a little bit of resources, but understands the meaning that they're trying to create with their customers. Those are the folks that you can help to mold brand for. Cool. Yeah, that that's great. Great advice. How do you measure and track success for a branding campaign? Um, the typical way that that's done is both through qualitative and quantitative research that's done before and after you launch. So you've got to use research to design a campaign to make sure that it resonates with people and has the meaning that you think it does and that it will be received in the way that you think it will. The second thing that you want to do is um, do that as follow-ups to introduction of the campaign. And what you're looking for is resonance. Uh, do you hear the words coming back that are the words that you use? Are you getting people to associate with the product, the ideas that you're putting out there? 
It shouldn't just be the tagline, but the tagline should be meaningful to people. When it rains, it pours. That's clever. That means a lot. And when you are trying to associate something that could otherwise be complicated or complex, I guess, that could be a way of breaking through that complexity. Make it simple. Tell a simple story. And so that's what you're looking for is do people hear it and do people repeat it back to you? So you can do that through quantitative research. You can do that through qualitative research. And I don't want to get away from this conversation without mentioning that there are now people who are looking at how do you do both with AI? How do you collect information that allows you to predict what people will receive or view uh, in what you're offering them based on small amounts of data that you're able to pull? And you know, we're, we're not set up here to talk about the implications, but the idea is, can we improve the process by whatever means? to understand whether we're having the impact we think we are. And there, to me, there's a lot of opportunity out there to do that. I love that. Yeah, I, I think that's a great a note to end on, honestly. This, this has been such an insightful conversation, and I certainly learned a lot about branding. So thank you, Stephen, for joining. You're very welcome. And Alex, I wish you all the best. Take care. Thank you so much. And thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll talk to you soon.